Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Healthy Girl Podcast. I am so excited for this episode because I know you all are going to learn so much. Today's guest is actually my personal functional medicine practitioner. I've been seeing her now for the past like year and a half, and she's honestly changed my life. I have gotten super close with her, and I wanted to bring her on the podcast so that she could share all of her incredible health knowledge with you all. Her name is Kim Marone. She is an acupuncture physician and functional medicine practitioner. Kim's goal is to really empower her patients to prevent and reverse chronic disease. You guys know I'm all about prevention and getting healthy while you're young. So I'm so glad Kim is on the same page as me. Uh, She also helps her patients to achieve optimal health and create and maintain a balanced and vibrant life. Kim has founded Evolve Acupuncture and Wellness. It's located in Delray Beach, but you can also see her via telehealth. So don't worry if you're not in the South Florida area, you can go and see her via telehealth, which is so amazing. She provides personalized healthcare using acupuncture. I also see Kim for acupuncture. Acupuncture is honestly extremely life-changing. So I see her for both acupuncture and functional medicine. And uh, she helps with holistic nutrition as well and creates personalized plans for each of her patients. This is a really juicy episode. We dive deep into gut health, how Kim healed my gut without antibiotics and completely naturally. We talk about elimination diets, the truth about soy. I know soy is a really hot button topic and I get a lot of questions about soy and there are so many misconceptions about it. So we really, we dive deep into talking about soy and whether or not it's good for you. We talk about whether you should be gluten-free or not the healthiest kind of bread you should be buying, top tips for optimal hormone health, and the impact that stress has on our health, and so much more. We really, I could have talked to Kim for hours and hours. This episode's packed with so much health and wellness advice, so just sit back, relax, enjoy this episode, and let's get into it. Hi, Kim. Welcome to the Healthy Girl Podcast. Hi, Danielle. So happy to be here. I'm so excited to chat with you. I mean... I know we're normally in a very different situation where like I'm here as your patient and like you're asking me all about my life and like how my gut's doing, how my fertility is going, how I'm like pooping during the day. But today you're in the hot seat. I can't wait to ask you all about (laughs) wellness, health, everything that you're amazing at. I really want to touch on like what you do best, like gut health, fertility, hormone health. I think like with my female audience, like Everyone these days, it seems like has some sort of gut problem. I mean, like I've sent like all my best friends to you and like everyone comes back and has some sort of issue in their gut, um, some kind of like hormone problem. So I really want to dive in and talk about everything wellness related regarding to that. But first, I really I want to talk about like how you got into Chinese medicine and like what like what sparked your interest in that? Well, um, I'm happy to be in this seat for once, because I am always asking you everything about yourself. Everything. Um, so I got into Chinese medicine. Uh, I got interested in college. I did some Asian studies, minored in Asian studies. And I was fascinated that the premise of a lot of like, you know, um, Buddhism, Hinduism, um, Confucianism, like had this deep understanding of our connection to nature and that in 
if we lived according to the principles of of what's happening in the natural world, then we would be a lot healthier. And that in order to live our life to the fullest, we had to take care of our bodies. And later, so that was always fascinating to me. And so I always sort of leaned a little bit more towards like natural medicine and holistic medicine. And then about 22, maybe 22 years ago, I had gotten in a really bad bicycle accident. And broke my arms and broke bones in my face and really got banged up. And the, I don't think I knew this. No, I I don't share it a lot, but oh, it was yeah. like significant in that I did come from a, I had a very healthy body, but it was really banged up. And my, you know, when I went to the doctors, they were, you know, wanted to put me on medications and antibiotics and, um, you know, wanted to do surgery. And and all of those things could have been helpful, but I also went to a Chinese medicine practitioner and got acupuncture, took herbs, and really sort of to started to dive into a more natural way of healing. And, you know, what happened was that I came back from all of those injuries and everything healed. And although I had to have some surgery on my wrist just because it wasn't going to heal correctly, everything else got better and healed 100%. And I kind of found myself really fascinated with the medicine and the whole idea of healing more holistically. And at the time, I didn't really know you could do this for a living. Like I was started to investigate how I would go about maybe becoming an acupuncturist or Chinese medicine practitioner. And that led me to enroll in school, and then three and a half years later became an acupuncture physician. Um, yeah. It's interesting because I feel like so many people in wellness and who work in health, oftentimes it stems from their own experiences that they use. Like for me, like I started eating a plant-based diet and experienced all these amazing health benefits, and then like I wanted to help people do the same thing. So I think it's interesting that your interest stems from your own experience and how you healed, and that probably made you want to help other people heal in, in the same way. Exactly. And I, I think that it's interesting because one of the things that I've noticed over the last 20 years as well is how far away from nature we have become, you know, how the understanding of how our body works and what it really needs has not really been taught to us. And, you know, one of the things that happened in the evolution of my uh, practice is really kind of diving into functional medicine. And when, you know, sometimes people will ask me like, well, you know, your background is Chinese medicine. Why, you know, why, why are you practicing functional medicine as well? And really Chinese medicine is functional medicine. It is root cause, like looking at underneath the symptoms and really kind of diving into what's happening in the environment of your own body, your particular body. And that really is the way that we practice in Chinese medicine. And it's just the language of functional medicine is more kind of scientific so that you know, people can actually relate to the language, but it's really the same thing and the same view of like, what's happening for you? What has happened to your body over time that has allowed it to either develop vibrant health or not vibrant health? 
do you think that when you have patients come to you, do you find that it's often hard to get them to kind of switch over to like the Chinese medicine, functional medicine way of thinking when they've typically been going to a Western medicine doctor their whole lives? Like, how does that work? Do you find, like, I'm very like natural holistic, like I like take to you run right away. It makes so much sense to me, but I can imagine that there's those people who like, this is very different for them. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that for me, it's about like finding a way to communicate what feels real to each person, you know? And when I sit down with someone for the first time, I'm spending an hour and a half going over everything that's ever happened to them and starting to help them see the connections and be able to see where the links are and also explaining things in a way that that makes sense because medical terminology isn't really um, accessible to, to most patients. And Chinese medicine isn't always accessible in the language that it was taught to me. Like I studied it for four years. So I understand when they talk about liver chi stagnation or liver overacting on spleen, or I understand about right. like phase one, phase two, detoxification pathways, sulfation, but that doesn't mean anything to anyone. So if I can kind of bring them along in the journey of themselves and and be able to communicate what's happening in their body that's in real time for them. You know, people have a more, there's more ability for them to follow protocols. And I, I will also say by the time somebody comes to a Chinese medicine practitioner, an acupuncturist or a functional medicine practitioner, they've gone to a lot of people. We're usually not first stop, you know? so. They're frustrated oftentimes with the answers that they get, and especially for women, because in women's health, it's often like, it's just your hormones, you're just depressed, or it's just aging, or this is just what happens. And there is not really the insight and the time given to really dive into what people are experiencing. Yeah, I do think that's like, one of the first things that I noticed when I first came to you, which I'm going to actually get into in a, se a second, this is a good segue, but when I first came to you, you sat and you talked to me for over an hour asking me everything about my life. It was very like holistic, like how my sleep connected to this and my gut and my stress and my relationship. Like you asked me about everything where I was very used to a doctor spending five minutes with me after a nurse saw me and like just asking me about like the one symptom I'm having right at the moment and then maybe prescribing a medication or, you know, giving me some kind of advice to maybe like cover up the symptom, but not actually like look at the root cause of what's going on. And I think that like that really opened my eyes to how treatment should be when it comes to your wellness. Like, I'm like, wow, like it was really nice to have like this, this doctor talk to me and actually like ask me about myself in all facets and aspects of my life because that gave you such a better understanding of how, how to treat me and what I needed. Because if you just asked me the one symptom I was having, that wouldn't have made any sense, um, which is what I wanted to talk about. I don't think I, this was like, I don't know why I didn't like feel the need at the time to like share this with my audience, but I, I woke up one day this was like how I got to Kim. That's what we're talking about. So I woke up one day and literally like I felt like I had the worst abdominal cramping. My lower back hurt so bad. 
and I literally like had the worst like diarrhea. I went like, sorry for the TMI, <laughs> but like this episode's going to be TMI. <laughs> I literally like probably went to the bathroom like 10 times. Like I just had cramping and I couldn't stop going to the bathroom. I'm like, what is going on? This isn't normal. Um, and I had no idea what was going on. I thought like maybe I ate something bad, whatever. And then like the next day, same thing. Um, and then this, like it kind of got a little bit better. And then um, I think it was like, this was already like a year ago plus some. Yes. The next week I it came back and I was like, flying that morning to go visit my parents and I'm like supposed to get on a plane and I can't stop going to the bathroom so I like I'm taking Imodium and I'm taking like a Xanax because everyone's like you have anxiety <laughs> I'm like look I have anxiety but that doesn't make you like shit your pants like <laughs> 20 times no, it, does. It, it can it could, but it, but it not, wasn't that not to yeah. the level of like it's not like just having a nervous stomach yes. like I was like not okay and so I got in to see a gastroenterologist. And I, I just want to say, like, I do think Western medicine, of course, has its place in time and, and its proper use. Um, but I had gone to see a gastro because obviously there was something going on in my gut. Um, and he asked me all these questions. And then he was like, I think you have irritable bowel disease. And I'm like, no, no, no. Listen, like I woke up one morning and this happened to me. Like this isn't like a lifelong thing I've been dealing with um, that you don't just like wake up and all of a sudden have irritable bowel disease. Like he was just like listening, like maybe he heard like random symptoms and then like was trying to put it into a box. And I'm like, look, like I just woke up like this one day. This is like a sudden issue, not like in a disease that's been like going on. And he's like, well, let's order a stool test um, and we're going to see what's going on. Like my stool, I have a great stool test. And um, I'm like, okay, we'll see. And um, I remember he he was like, I'll give you, it was like an anti like cramping medication. Like he wasn't like, here's a probiotic, here's this. Like he's like, here's a prescription and like, we'll get your stool test results back soon. They called me with the stool test results and they're like, we found nothing. So like, you're good. But there was no like follow up. There was no like this, you know, your stool taste, stool test came back normal. So like we should keep investigating. They just like never followed up. Like they didn't care. Um, and then that's when my lovely mother-in-law who um, I, I feel like she, I just owe her everything because she introduced <laughs> me to you. She's like, you have to go see Kim. And I'm like, really? Like, she can help with this? Like, uh, not that I was, like, skeptical of you at all, but I'm like, I, I have something, like, serious yes, going this on. This is a real thing. Yeah. yeah. Like, I was really in pain. And she's like, no, 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 trust me. Like, she solves everything. So then I went to see you. Long story short, you did a stool test. Your stool test was obviously more comprehensive because you were like, you have H. pylori, which... You explain what H. pylori is. You can explain better than me. So H. pylori is an, we all have some H. pylori in us, but if it gets overgrown, then we have an infection and it lives in the stomach. And when we have H. pylori, it lowers stomach acid. So when our stomach acid is lowered, it also allows for other bacteria to get in and overgrow. And then we wind up with, you know, like long, long term down the road, we wind up with a lot of dysbiosis. And so, and each, what's dysbiosis? So, for dysbiosis anyone? is a imbalance of our good, wonderful, beneficial bacteria that is supporting our health and our immune system all the time, 
an imbalance of that to the opportunistic and sort of inflammatory bacteria that can overgrow. We have all of it in us. And when everything is in harmony, everything is in harmony. It lives in harmony. And the the troublesome bacteria stay where they're supposed to stay and they don't overgrow and they don't create like inflammatory situations in the GI tract. Oftentimes what happens is we have an unknowingly, we have a H. pylori infection that has lowered our stomach acid over time for a while. And then we get something like a food poisoning, like usually a self-limiting, you know, some self-limiting limiting bacteria and our stomach acid is, is so great that it kills it. But when we have that H. pylori infection, that's our first line of defense in that stomach. It allows for lots of other things to overgrow, and we wind up with lots of GI distress. Okay, got it. So this actually like cleared something up for me. The H. pylori is not the food poisoning. It's that the H. you had like a H. pylori issue, but then you had something with bad bacteria. And because you had H. pylori, that made the food poisoning that you got worse. Yeah. It allowed, because again, normally our body can handle that. We all eat things that are like microbes that are problematic. But if we have a really strong functioning GI tract, it gets killed along the way. So that is probably like, you know, I'm don't have a camera inside you at the time, but that is probably what instigated the initial the initial diarrhea. What happens is if those, it creates so much inflammation that if it doesn't get addressed, like that bacteria might be, have gone, been, been gone and not show up on a test, but the inflammation is still there. It sets into, into motion this very inflammatory bowel situation. And long-term, it can it just it perpetuates this this inflammatory situation and a lot of intestinal permeability and ultimately like you know they talk about leaky gut but a lot of that is because at the very start there isn't enough stomach acid because there's a h pylori infection got it so so yeah so you discovered and keep in mind this is like a week before my wedding and I'm like, Kim, I need you to fix me. So I'm not like going to the bathroom a hundred times when I'm in my ceremony. Um, and you were like, don't worry. Like we're going to get this under control. Like you were very calm. You're like, oh, I know what this is. I deal with this all the time. I'm like, really? Like I'm not like some <laughs> special case. You're like, this is very common. But can you talk about your treatment approach to H. pylori and maybe like how that would be different if maybe uh, a gastroenterologist or someone found this issue? So whenever I run a stool test on patients, like we always talk about like the two paths that we can take. And one of the paths that is always on the table is that they go to their gastroenterologist or their GI doctor and there is antibiotic therapy. For something like H. pylori, which is can be very resistant to treatment. It likes to come back. It it's kind of can be very stubborn. But the treatment is like a triple or a quadruple therapy, which means that several antibiotics and proton pump inhibitors, and people don't tend to feel good on them. But I definitely have patients who are like, that's it. It's fast. It's 14 days. It's done and over with. And, and they feel like that's the direction they want to go in. My approach is a little bit different because 
we already have a system that is out of balance. So kind of coming at it with heavy hitters like antibiotics, especially those triple therapies, can sometimes do damage you know, to the, other, to the rest of the microbiome. So again, each case is not the same. Like for you, we used like gastromend HP, which is some um, deglycerated liquish and some mastica and some zinc carnosine and... Like we, you know, you, you didn't have the worst case. And so we didn't have to like shoot it with a cannon, but we did need to treat it and we needed to make sure that it was gone. Um, for other people, if it's more stubborn, if they have other things that show up in the stool test, other bacteria, we're going to come at it from a different place. And then for some people, I get their stool test back. There's so much deficiency there's so little good bacteria or such an imbalance that the, the work first is to strengthen their GI tract and to actually build up their microbiome. And then we can actually go after the infections. Right. Yeah. I remember you saying, because I was like, well, do I need an antibiotic? And you're like, look, like you have this dysbiosis, you have all this bad bacteria. You're like, you need all the good bacteria that you can hold on to right now. And if I took an antibiotic, that would be wiped out because it's just going to yes. kill everything. So I, I always remember you saying that you're like, we can't get rid of your good bacteria too. So we're going to, I just remember you put me on this supplement plan. And um, I remember honestly, within like two days feeling a million times better. Um, it took a, a pretty long time. I mean, long ish for me to feel like a hundred percent, but like it was really like a complete 180 when you gave me gave me the plan and you also told me to eat a certain way which i think is also important to note like if you have any kind of like gut disruption or whether it's food poisoning or whatever it is like you you gave me a very specific way of eating can you explain that yes <clears throat> you're going to tax my memory but basically one of the things that you know is a big problem in our culture is like we don't digest well. We don't spend a lot of time like, you know, we're eating on the go, we're not chewing, we're like, you know, we're snacking and grazing all day. And one of the things that you and I talked about was like, we have to give our digestive system time in between meals to actually digest the food so that it's can actually do its job and then move on to the next job. And so for right. you and I, we talked about like you try not to graze all day, you know, right. eat Honestly, your meals. I didn't even remember that. You're like, don't snack all day. You need to like eat three meals and have like a space, like yes. hours in between eating. We definitely, you know, and for some people, again, lots of things get nuanced, but like a general rule is like four hours in between meals. And that gives your digestive tract a chance to be actually empty and not constantly having to break food down and break food down and break food down. Um, it's exhausting energetically and our, our good bacteria can't keep up, you know, with all that digestion. So we were not definitely not meant to graze. You know, we were lucky, you know, a few hundred years ago to get three meals. Like, now we can have three meals, but we need to make sure that we're not constantly putting things in our mouth. So this goes for anyone, not just someone dealing really with a anyone. gut problem. It's yeah. like we're better off for our gut health, eating, taking a break so we can actually digest. Yes, 100%. That's we have really to give that system 
like some time off to time to just like, like when we talk about rest and digest, it isn't, you know, if we think about it, food stays in the stomach for about an hour, give or take. Some people are, have a slower motility and then it goes into the small intestine and it's there for quite a long time. Like we want it to pass through that upper small intestine. It's going to be in the small intestine for hours, but like, we don't want to keep that, you know, if you think of it like a funnel, like a tunnel, like we just don't want food in that tunnel all the time. We want that stomach to rebuild its acid, you know, in between meals. Like it should be so acidic that if you dropped your keys in it, it would disappear. You know, if we constantly have food, it's diluting <laughs> that, that, that ability of the stomach. Right. No, that makes total sense. And then also you told me, I mean, based on my test, you were like, you're not sensitive to gluten, but you're like, because you're trying to heal your gut, you should really be like as gluten-free as you possibly can. Why did you make that recommendation? Well, so this can be sort of controversial because like everyone, you know, for everyone, gluten isn't creating an immune response, but we know that gluten, like... I always think of like gluten, it's very gluey, it's very sticky, especially in the way that we eat it in our culture because it's in so many processed foods and and our breads. It gets very, it gets the villi in the small intestines very sticky. And we want those villi to be like, like fine little hair fibers that can actually sort out our food. So when we eat gluten, for most people, like it's, it's not the bread that was made 300 years ago, you know, it creates a lot of inflammation in the GI tract. The other thing is, is that what we know and what we've seen in studies and literature is that for a lot of people that create antibodies to gluten, you know, and when that happens, when you make an antibody, you also make an inflammatory response. So you're just creating more inflammation in that area, especially the gut. You know, we, if you ate bread a couple hundred years ago, that bread was like, it took days to make bread. Those gluten particles fermented, basically. That's why like, you know, for some people who are even gluten sensitive, they can actually eat sourdough bread, like real sourdough bread that's fermented. Um, So sourdough bread is healthier. It is healthier, yeah. Okay, that's not just a myth. It's not a myth. I mean, if it's made like in where we are, there's uh, a baker. His name is Zach, Zach the Baker. Oh, I know him. You know him, right? Just from seeing it at Whole Foods, but I love it. Yeah. It's great So <laughs> his sourdough bread is made like sort of that ancient way where you just like ferment the yeast and the, the gluten, the actual gluten breaks down in that fermentation process it makes it less like sticky in the small intestine. So hmm. people people do much better. Interesting. So would you recommend that everyone's gluten-free? Like what's your what's your hot take on this? <clears throat> I think we eat too much gluten. <laughs> okay. So I don't I'm not across the board like oh everyone needs to be gluten-free, but I do think that the quality of what we're eating that is bread and pasta-like foods are really poor. So if we can source better, if we can source better quality, like they're using like the zero, zero flour, um, people are, you know, 
like especially in the beginning of COVID, people were making sourdough bread and they were doing the starters. And like, I think that is a is a better thing. And I also think that we just eat so much of gluten-containing foods that in our bodies, it's really hard to break down and digest. And large quantities too. I feel like people always talk about when they go to Italy and the plate of pasta they get is like literally two bites of pasta and you go here and it's like a whole family could eat off of one entree. And I think that's a big difference too in like how people are in other countries. Um, It's just like, it's a lot of gluten in our diets in total, but also the serving sizes of it are really large as well. Oh, absolutely. Like if you have, a again, like Italy, you have a, a bowl of pasta, it's, you know, depending on, I have kind of a big hand, but it's <laughs> not going to be bigger than my fist as opposed to you go and order pasta and you have a big bowl. And the other thing is that it's a little bit insidious in the same way, you know, I'm going to kind of liken it to soy. Like, Cultures that eat a lot of soy are the healthiest cultures. They have the least amount of breast cancer. They have the least amount of like menopause symptoms and hormone disruption. But when they're eating soy, they are consciously having like fermented soy or they're having tofu. In our country, soy is in everything. Like anything that you're going to take out of a package is going to have soy in it. And interestingly enough, the same with gluten. So it isn't I always like will say to my patients, it's not the conscious things that you're eating that are the problem. It's the unconscious, unknown things that gluten is in your mustard. Gluten is going to be in your salad dressing. Gluten is in. So it's exposure over time, you know, of all of these things that the body really doesn't know what to do with that were made in a way that the body doesn't know what to do with. You know, we co-evolved with plants. So in a perfect world, like our bodies know what to do with the things that get get grown in the earth. You know, like we have recognition of those things. When we eat them, our body is like, oh, I know what this is. I know exactly what to do with this. When we start manipulating it in a in a lab or in a factory, and then we're putting, you know, some of it in everything, our body is just overexposed. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's good that you touched on soy because there is a difference between different kinds of soy. And I I do think soy has a pretty bad reputation. And it's hard because as, you know, a plant-based influencer, I'm constantly making the recommendation to make recipes with soy, but mostly because it's a great protein source. But I'm recommending things like tofu and edamame and foods like that. And I think there's such a big difference between having like a bowl of edamame when you're out to sushi versus having like a highly processed vegan meat that uses like a soy protein isolate. You're so right. You took the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) You know, soy gets a bad rap, you know, for a couple of reasons. We have mistaken soy phytoestrogens for xenoestrogens, you know, so anything phytoestrogen got a bad rap during the women's health initiative trial study, which was, again, not done well. And the outcomes, you know, the the data doesn't support that like soy is bad. Um, and, and to go back to like co-evolving with plants, like as women, you know, as as humans who should be eating you know, 
at least 80% of our diet should be from plants. You know, um, most plants have phytoestrogens in them. So it's no surprise that we as women, you know, who are XX chromosomes, so we have a lot of, you know, we have a lot more genes, you know, as we kind of talked earlier before the podcast, like women are XX chromosomes, X chromosomes have 1,048 genes. Men are XY chromosomes, Y chromosomes have 78 genes. Every part of our body has estrogen and hormone receptors, which means that we have to not only have the hormones that our body makes, but we need foods that support those estrogens in the form of phytoestrogens. They're some of the most healthy foods we can eat. And so, of course, if we, if, if we are subsidizing soy farmers, which I'm not saying is bad or good, but what we find is that soy is in everything and soy in a bad, um, a bad molecular structure. So really cleanly sourced healthy soy is so important for us, you know, and for my patients who are vegan, I am always talking to them about that. We need protein and tofu is a great source of that protein. And if it's not genetically modified, if it's organic, if especially if it's like some of the fermented soys are so good, um, then we should incorporate that as part of our diet. Thousand percent. I'm a big soy girl. Yeah. I love tofu. I love edamame, like always eating it multiple times a week. It's just like the best. And I, I like, I was a little scared of tofu for a while, not for like any kind of health reason, but because like I didn't know how to make it. But it, once you learn how to make it, it can be a great source of protein. Yeah. So I'm glad we touched on that. I want to talk about, well, we're still talking about gut health, but when a patient comes to you and they're explaining like certain symptoms they have, what symptoms will make you order them a stool test? So maybe someone at home, like they don't realize that they have, you know, something going on that where they should go and get a stool sample done. Yeah. So if I'm sitting with a patient and they are telling me about symptoms that have, have any sort of correlation or connection to digestive like disturbance. So they're bloated, really bloated, they're gassy, they have acid reflux, they feel like food is not moving, either they are constipated or they are going to the bathroom too much, you know, like five times a day and it's loose. Um, also, like if there is a lot of fatigue, if they're having a lot of like skin stuff, I might think like there is a gut thing going on. Skin stuff like what? Like eczema, psoriasis, hives, um, then I'm, you know, the outside of us, which is our skin, is our barrier system, as a barrier system, is the same tissue as the inside of us. I always tell my patients, like, from your mouth to your butt is the outside. It's a barrier system. Just because we can close our mouth and we can sit down doesn't mean it's internal. That tube from our mouth to our but needs to have uh, needs to be a strong barrier system. And if we're having problems in our skin, 99.99% of the time we're having problems in our GI tract. Would that go for something like acne too? Yeah, it can. You know, sometimes acne can be hormonal. So even with that, like I really check in with what 
when does that happen? What does that look like? If they're, you know, if the patient's in front of me, I'm looking at it. Like there's a difference between cystic acne and, and sort of more inflammatory acne. So again, it's so individual. Um, a lot of times, you know, like some of my patients will come in and, and finances can be an issue and like doing lots of functional medicine tests isn't always like an option. So there's so many things we can do like elimination diet, um, taking out certain, that's sort of the gold standard. Um, you do that for 28 days and you give them some, you know, really just the, the fab five of supplements if they're not taking any supplements. And after 28 days, we most of the time we're going to see tremendous improvements. And then where we don't see any changes, then we can sort of dive in and do a little bit more testing. So someone who maybe has like some sort of like skin issue and maybe they're not doing a stool test, what is there like for the elimination diet? Are there things that you have like everyone eliminate right off yes. the bat? And what would those So your sort be? of gold standard elimination diet is... Gluten, sugar, dairy, processed, any all processed foods, processed meats, um, even shellfish, um, just because unless it's like we know for sure it's like, you know, sustainably wild caught, it's just, it can be so toxic. Um, so there is that sort of standard. It's, you know, if you literally Googled elimination diet, you take those things out for 28 days. And the reason for that is, Nothing is going to change very much in just a couple days because our body has these inflammatory responses. And so sometimes people will come and they'll say, well, I took sugar out and nothing changed. Like how long? Two weeks. I took, you know, I took gluten out for like two weeks and nothing changed. When we take all the known offenders, like the big, the big, allergy foods out of the diet and we take them out for a month, it gives the body a chance to actually settle down and sort of quench that fire. And then we just don't say hell's bells and bring everything back in. We bring one food in at a time to see what is the culprit. And we are pretty slow and methodical about it. And people will be like, no, I brought back in eggs. Everything was great. You know, and then they'll be like, oh my gosh, I brought back in milk. Like my face broke out. I had diarrhea. I had a headache. I've had brain fog. And so that's, that's really a great way and a cost-effective way to really see what's happening in our body and what food might, what role food may be playing in our body. Yeah, I think that's super helpful and like safe for someone to do at home because I think it is important to do uh, these kinds of things under the guidance of a wellness practitioner. But this is something like if you eliminate gluten and, you know, maybe you're doing like a quinoa instead of like a, a pasta or yeah, something like that. even brown rice or brown right. rice pasta or chickpea pasta or because basically you're looking at the big allergens, which, you know, are fairly standard, you know. I see, I don't think everyone's allergic to gluten, but very many people are having reactions to gluten. You know, a lot of people have reactions to eggs. I don't know if it's because of how we're processing them and how we're pasteurizing them. I'm like, I don't know what all the, all the whys are, but I see a lot more food allergies and sensitivities. And, you know, Sometimes if I think it's strictly a food thing, I will use a food sensitivity test, you know, and 
the one that I use and the reason that I use it is it doesn't just, it tests for four antibodies. So you're testing across the spectrum of the immune system. So you might not have a true allergy, but you have a, a food sensitivity. Sensitivity is such a funny word because it sounds like, eh, not so bad, sensitive. But what that means is that when you eat a certain food, might be for you like a walnut, say, and you have a food sensitivity, you eat that walnut, your body makes an antibody, an IgG antibody, and it might make it in a very small amount, not big deal, but it might make a lot of it. And an IgG antibody has a 21-day half-life, which means 21 days after you eat it, you still have half of those antibodies. The problem with antibodies is antibodies don't come out on their own. We have a very intelligent system. And if our immune system has recognized something as a problem, it's going to now send in the inflammatory system. So you're going to have an influx of inflammation and cytokines released to actually address what your body has perceived as a problem. And so food sensitivities, I kind of wish they would change the word. So I just say like, you're having an IgG antibody reaction to this food, which means your body is is creating like a defense to it, which involves inflammation. That's interesting. So very. I think though, like hearing what you're saying, it's like it is super helpful if someone can do an elimination diet at home and see like what could be bothering them and obviously like slowly adding things back in so they can like really target what might be upsetting them. So helpful. (laughs) And there's so much guidance out there. There really is. Like, you know, when I was young, we had the Britannica, you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica. We have Google. And so there's lots of guides, you know, and again, it's just, it's your body giving you the check engine lights to be able to then make an informed decision. It doesn't mean, like I always tell my patient, it doesn't mean you're never going to have the cake. It just means that when you have the cake, you might take some extra digestive enzymes, you may, might take some some apple cider vinegar beforehand, and you might just be okay with the headache because the cake was worth it. You know, it isn't to like limit ourselves because I really do believe that we are meant to eat the food that was made on this earth, you know? And so if we're having tons of reactions to food, that's more of like maybe the quality of what we're eating if it's a lot of processed food. But it could also mean that we just have some inflammation in our gut or again, that dysbiosis, that sort of imbalance of good to bad bacteria that needs to be addressed. And so we take the foods out for a little while we heal the gut, we do lots of good things for the nervous system, and then eventually we can bring back those healthy foods. So when someone, let's say someone does do a stool test with you, what do you think are like the top, maybe like three to five most common issues you see in people's guts, specifically, let's say women's guts? I see a lot of H. pylori. Um, I see, interestingly enough, I see a lot of low beneficial bacteria, so really altered microbiomes. And so that's the second. I see a lot of candida um, and then just like overgrowth of, of inflammatory bacteria. If we have an overgrowth of inflammatory bacteria, if we have candida and if we have H. pylori, it really is, uh, it is symptom. And then usually the cause is just poor digestion. I really do see 
stress as being one of the major factors because if we look at, you know, you can sort of Google a picture of the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the nerve that is most involved with our parasympathetic nervous system, our rest and digest, our calm nervous system. When we have a lot of stress, that vagus nerve is becomes weaker. And that vagus nerve is required for a lot. There's some of our beneficial bacteria cannot be repopulated with a, a probiotic. It literally requires a calm system. It requires what we call strong vagal tone. And so when we're stressed out, the first thing that happens is our digestive system takes a hit. In Chinese medicine, we literally call it liver overacting on spleen because liver is the organ that is most related to stress. And the spleen stomach is the, is the place of digestion. So stress is so prevalent in our population today, especially the last few years. So I'm seeing a lot of imbalances in the last two years, especially in my, my female, my women patients. That's so interesting. And I feel like maybe a lot of women might write off their stress and maybe if they went to you or a doctor and their doctor's like, I think you're just really stressed, like they might just think that like you're brushing them aside. But I do think stress and anxiety has so much impact on our system. I know for me, like if I have any kind of anxiety, I don't want to eat, my digestive system's messed up. Like you can feel like that mind-body connection. Like even like something like, let's say you have to make a public speech and you get anxious and you like have to like go to the bathroom a million times. Like that is like kind of like a short-term example of a mind-body connection. But if you're like chronically stressed, like I can really see how that would have an impact on your system. Yeah, and I think it's important. I had a patient recently, a young girl, and she has having a lot of digestive issues. And we talked about vagus nerve and we talked about and she's we talked about like her history and what her stress is like. And for her, she she was actually it was interesting because she was very honest with me. She's like, I don't want to hear that this is all stress, as if stress is like a word or an emotion. And so one of the things we did was sit down and look at the physiological aspects of stress. Like stress isn't a, it's not an adjective or it's not a noun. It's a physiological response in the body. And it actually is, you know, the word that they use as it's reductionary. Like when we are under a tremendous amount of stress and that stress isn't always like, oh, you know, my personal life. It could be internal stressors like stress of infection, stress of like uh, an altered microbiome or blood sugar dysregulation or in other inflammation. Or it could be external stressors. I'm working too hard. I'm not feeding myself well. I'm not moving my body. I'm not sleeping. Those, str those stressors create that physiological response in the body that actually alters our, it alters our, the way we make red blood cells, it alters the way our cardiovascular system works, our neurological system, our endocrine system. And so it's not this sort of brush off, which a lot of people do get of like, oh, it's just stress. It's like, what are the stressors? What do we have to do to support your body? And what do we do to make sure that we change that physio physiological response? That makes a lot of sense. So someone looking to reduce stress for whatever it is, gut health, overall health, what are like three great stress reducers? Sleep. <laughs> Sleep, number one. Um, 
one of the things that I'm always like, I'm, I use like um, sticky notes a lot. So I will write as I'm, as I'm doing an intake with people, like I'll sort of free write on the side of things that come up that may help them. And one of the things that I try to get my patients, especially my time strap patients to do a lot is it's called non-sleep deep rest or NSDR. It used to be called, you know, it's also yoga nidra for those people who are, who know a lot about yoga, but basically it's when we use this practice, it literally enhances our parasympathetic nervous system and it takes our body out of that sympathetic fight or flight. And over time, it actually changes physiology. They're doing a lot of research at Stanford um, in Andrew Huberman's lab on non-sleep deep rest and it can be done in 10 minutes. And so for a lot of times with my patients, they're busy, you know, and to tell them, I want you to lay down twice a day for 25 minutes, put your legs up the wall and do a yoga nidra is impossible. Like they couldn't possibly fit that in, but can they fit in a 10 minute non-sleep deep rest that they just like, you know, put into their phone, you know, on YouTube or like just Google non-sleep deep rest. Interestingly enough, it, it changes the stress response long-term. And the other thing is, is literally be in nature. Like even if it's for 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes at night, obviously the more, the better, a good long walk. You know, my mom would say, if you're feeling crappy, go for a walk. And if you come back and you don't feel better, go for another walk. Being in nature, like our body was designed to be out there. You know, I was thinking the other day after talking to a patient, she's like, I don't think my feet ever touch the earth. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, I get up in the morning, I get ready for my day. I'm, you know, I'm on my floor, you know, my tile floor. I put my shoes on, I go to the car, you know, I take the cement walkway, I go into my building, like my feet don't touch the earth. And we're so far removed from it. So if we can just be outside in nature, if we sleep well, and if we're really stressed out using like those techniques, like a non-sleep deep rest or a short yoga nidra are super helpful. Those are great tips. And then someone, okay, so reduce stress. And then what are things people can do at home in terms of food that'll boost their their gut health and, you know, kind of help to feed the, the good bacteria? Because you said that was like a number one issue was like, you don't see enough of good bacteria. So um, diversity, diversity, diversity. Um, one of my mentors who I, I did a fellowship in herbal medicine, his name is Kevin Spellman. And he is like a researcher biologist. And what he sort of has said is that we as human beings were meant to eat about anywhere from 180 to 250 different plant species in a year. And sometimes when I'm working with middle schoolers, like I do some volunteer work, I'll have them write down like all the vegetables that they eat. And on average, it's eight. Like, and I'll have them go back days and weeks we need diversity. So when I'm working with a patient, even like my older patients, you know, in their 70s and even into their 80s, I give them a phytonutrient handout. And it's it's all the colors of the rainbow and all the, all the fruits and vegetables of those colors. And I'll say, every day, I want you to try to get in at least four of these colors. 
because it is the diversity of plants that actually keep our microbiome, our gut health in check. And, you know, when they talk about the root of our health is in the gut, like it's for real. Like our immune system, that enteric nervous system is really the most important part of our immune system. So I always tell people, increase your diversity, eat the rainbow, like make it like a goal to get in at least seven to eight to 10 different plants in a day. And those, that could be herbs as well. It doesn't mean that you have to have 27 cups of food. Um, the other thing is to cook your food. You know, my, I work with a nutritionist in my office, um, Georgette Schwartz, who I adore. And we had this discussion the other day that it's very, very hard to be healthy when we don't cook, you know? So start to love ourselves enough to make food for ourselves and nourish ourselves. At first I thought you meant like cook your vegetables, like eat like yeah. steamed veggies instead of rubbing. Yeah. You really mean like I make mean your like own food, make in- your food instead of going like, out. Okay. <laughs> you know, I love to go out to dinner. Like I love food. I love the experience of it. I love like the communal nature of it. But we need to really cook and nourish ourselves. And so to really prepare more food and then chew our food. We chew three times and swallow. I had a long discussion with my patient this morning. It's like, we need to break that food down because digestion starts in the brain. Like thinking about eating actually starts the digestive process. That's why preparing our food is so great for our digestion because we're looking at it, we're touching it, we're smelling it, we're cooking it, we're chopping it. And then when we sit down, like to actually do that one thing, which is eat and really chew our food because every time we chew, those muscles of what we say, muscles of mastication create more saliva. The saliva has enzymes that the muscle contraction actually signals the stomach to increase stomach acid. It starts the whole cascade of digestion. So more plants, much, much, much more plants. Cook your food if you can, to some degree, prepare your own food for yourself who you should love a lot and chew more. I heard this quote the other day that like goes perfectly with what you're saying. It was something, I don't remember who said it, but it was like going out to eat is entertainment. It's not nutrition. And that really stuck with me because when there, I mean, there's some great healthy restaurants. And if you, I don't know, go to like a juice bar in the morning, it's a little different. But if you're just like going to an Italian restaurant around town or like a Mexican place, like they're cooking to make your food taste good. They don't really like necessarily have your health in mind. Yeah. A hundred percent there, you know, there are obviously some restaurants who are just doing a beautiful job at farm to table and sourcing really great ingredients and making sure they're using the right oils and all of those things and preparing the food with love. But for the most part, it's food for the masses. If you're one of 400 dinners that they serve in a night, you know, there's not as much love as like when your mom's making you a, you know, a big bowl of soup. So, you know, we have sort of lost that art of being in the kitchen, which is so great with what you do because you make it doable for people. You make it beautiful, you make it interesting, you make it fun, and you make it delicious, you know? And people look at what you do and they're like, I can do that. Like even people in my office are like, 
I made a salad that Danielle made online. I know everyone in your <laughs> office. Every time I come in, they're like, I made this and I made this salad and this pasta. So no, I really, that's what I try to do because I want people cooking at home too. And it really doesn't have to be this like scary, like crazy thing that's like expensive or takes too many ingredients or time. Like it can, once you find like a couple things in the rotation, it can be like really easy. Yeah. And it's so, once it's you learn. just so good for us to to do that. Like there is no it's substitute. so fun. Once and you get fun. into it. Yeah. hundred percent. I always say like, make it fun for yourself because I think people often look at cooking as a chore. Like, oh, like I don't, like I have to make myself dinner, but it's like, no, like put some fun music on, light a candle, like invite your girlfriend over, make a fun dinner. Like it really doesn't have to be this chore. It yeah. Be, it doesn't have to be. It can be really fun. I so put I like on French cooking that. music. Wait, same. Really? Yes. Oh, totally. I love French cooking yeah. music and like bossa nova. Like yeah. Ja- yeah. Yeah. Saturdays, yeah. I do a lot of cooking. John is playing golf. Like I've gotten my kind of office work done and I've already gone to the store mm-hmm. and I'll make like a lot of food that will like sustain us through the beginning of the week. But And cooking is my love language too. Like I love to cook for people. You know, and what I say to my patients is like, make it your love language to yourself, you know, like that you take the time to nourish this body that gets you through the day every day, you know, um, it needs fuel and it needs food. It needs real food. Agree. A hundred percent. Okay. I want to touch on hormone health for like one minute and then like ask you like some like rapid fire personal questions. So I feel like a lot of women have hormone health issues these days, what are like your top five things that women can do to support their hormone health slash fertility health? Top five things, um, have stress management protocols in place. Stress is a part of our life. It isn't actually even necessarily bad. It's just our perception of it and what, what, what we allow it to do in our life. So making sure that we have things, practices in our life, whether that's meditation or walking working out, like making sure we get enough sleep um, to manage that stress. So stress reduction practices and techniques for hormones because hormones, stress hormones and sex hormones come from the same raw materials. And if we are stressed out, we are going to always preferential, preferentially make stress hormones over sex hormones. So in order to have really good hormone balance, we need to make sure that we're balanced and that we have ways to actually manage our stress. Number two is sleep and circadian rhythm. Our hormones are really dictated by our circadian rhythm, you know. So when we have poor sleep habits, our hormones get affected because our hormones are being made from signals to the brain. The third is food. We need to make sure that we're getting enough fat, we're getting enough protein, and we're getting enough phytonutrients. We have to feed ourselves and not starve ourselves. Intermittent fasting is a big thing. I actually love it in very many ways. But for women, women are not men. Women cannot intermittent fast for 16, 18 hours, in my opinion. And I know there's some controversy around that. But like, we need food and fuel because... We have 1,040 more genes, you know. Those genes need to get the proper nutrition. Um, And we have to move our bodies. You know, women need to be strong um, and we need to be flexible and we need to be able to move our body. Is that four? I think so. Fifth, blood sugar balance. We kind of 
our hormones are very, very linked to our ability to manage glucose and insulin. So making sure that we're moving our body and sleeping in a way and eating in a way that manages our blood sugar. I, I have a, you know, I, I think it's very, very important for women to know how their hormones are working in their body. And now in our time, like in 2022, we have lots of ways to be able to look closer at that. And, you know, I just think that it's the un, uh, it's the unexplored part of us that we haven't really had the technology or the ability to look at, and now we can, and we should really know what our hormones are doing. 100%. I agree with you on all of that. And just a couple like fun rapid fire questions to wrap things up. One, what's your favorite, favorite breakfast, healthy breakfast? Um, eggs with, um, I take a whole carton of like uh, greens that are salad greens, but I wilt them once I get the eggs cooked. And I put, um, I put it in a plate with some hummus and fermented food. My very favorite breakfast. What kind of fermented food? Like, like I like a dill sauerkraut from um, Beagle Bay. I mean, they make such great sauerkrauts. They make a carrot and dill one that I eat a jar a week of it. Oh, my God. I yeah. got to get some of that. I, I just love it. I bring a little container of it every day. Yeah. But there's so many good sauerkrauts out there now. Totally. So what what's something that's always in your grocery cart? Fennel. Mm. Do you roast it? I do roast it sometimes or I grill it, but I use the mandolin every, you know, I make a salad every night with our dinner and I use the mandolin and put fennel in it every night. Fennel is one of the best digestives. Like if we're having trouble digesting, fennel is like so critical. So I always end my meal with a salad. Um, Some cultures, they eat it first. I eat it second and I always have fennel in it. And lastly, what's your favorite wellness trend and your least favorite wellness trend? My least favorite wellness trend. Um, (laughs) I feel torn. My least favorite wellness trend is, um, is celery juice. Really? Every day. Yes. I mean, I like it, but I don't think it's the answer. I think that people have to be doing more than that. You know, so when, so I think sometimes things just like go bananas and people think that, well, I'm doing this and that's the answer, you know, and it's a compliment. Yes. It's a compliment. And also like, you know, there's lots of really good advice out there, but we are individuals. Like we are, we are very unique individuals and what's good for you is not necessarily good for me. Um, My most favorite wellness trend right now is everything and anything that Andrew Huberman is talking about. He's, he's brilliant. And I do think that he's, you know, being a neurobiologist and an ophthalmologist is like, we have, you know, we have a, a culture that is stressed and dealing with lots of like mental health stuff and just like, you know, anxiety in, in proportion that we haven't seen before. And so anything that we can do to empower ourselves to like feel better and take more control over our life in every way, I'm like, I'm so, and I love him because he's an information giver. 
He wants you to know it and like be able to do something with it. Love it. Um, So everyone go look up Andrew Huberman. And where can everyone find you on social media? And if they're in the South Florida area? Um, I'm in Delray Beach. My practice is Evolve Acupuncture and Wellness. I'm on Instagram at Evolve underscore Delray. Um, And I'm also on Facebook under Evolve Acupuncture and Wellness. And you know, a lot of your friends I see through telemedicine. So even if you're not here. Oh, like, true. Yeah, we can totally help you. 100%. Yeah. I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. You can make telehealth appointments. Yeah, exactly. You guys, every like literally all my friends go to Kim. The whole family goes to Kim. So you all need to go to Kim. Thank you so much. This was Here's... amazing. We could talk. Like I have a million more questions <laughs> for you. We'll just have to do a part two. Beautiful. But this was amazing. Yeah, Thank this you. was awesome. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I love what you do as well. It's so beneficial to people. Love you. Love you too.